Welcome to Public Domain Playhouse's podcast number three of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Originally published January 5th, 1886, this book, also known as The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or simply Jekyll and Hyde, is about uh, a London legal practitioner who is friends with this doctor. And it's a weird case where the man kind of disappears and they worried about him being murdered by this evil counterpart, Mr. Hyde. We are about to find out what the characters find out for the first time about their friend and benefactor of many gracious dinner parties. Supposedly Robert Louis Stevenson had his own struggles and bad dreams where he conceived of this story. That's the story behind this, that he fell into a stupor, refused any servants or any family up into his room for three days. Sounds kind of familiar if you're remembering what happened in the last three chapters. Those being the Carew murder case, where they were looking into a man who got clubbed to death the incident of the letter, the remarkable incident of Dr. Lanyon, and the incident at the window. I believe we read the incident of the letter, the remarkable case of Dr. Lanyon, and the incident at the window last time. And as we found out, they decided to bum-rush the door and knock it down. But apparently Dr. Jekyll had excellent taste in door workmanship, because it took a little while, but they finally got the door open, rush in, and they find the dead body of Mr. Hyde, wearing Dr. Jekyll's clothes. Now they believe the worst about their friend, Dr. Jekyll, that he's been murdered by the evil Hyde. So let's get right to it and figure out exactly what happens in Dr. Lanyon's narrative, followed by Henry Jekyll's full statement of case. Thank you for joining me. One of the things I enjoy doing most of all in reading to you in these podcasts is having a chance to review the literature myself. Some of these stories I've read before, but I have never performed any of these before as podcasting is relatively new to me. But one of the things I really enjoy doing is talking about this literature. And Jekyll and Hyde is an actual important piece of literature in the sense that it was representative of the times, the late 1800s when it was written, when pharmacopoeia was kind of a Wild West show. And there were no rules or regulations yet, so people were selling all kinds of things. Methamphetamine, cannabis, heroin probably, all kinds of things were sold over the counter. So pharmacopoeia was definitely in the day-to-day -day lives of people like Stevenson. There's an obvious connection to drugs in this story, in the sense that he's a doctor and he whips up, you know, what's called basically a batch of his potion, which is made out of a white powdered salt, which is, to me, indicative of, I guess it could be anything. It could be a speed, like an amphetamine, or it can be a depressant, like an opiate. Or it could be something in between. Obviously, it creates something ghoulish. It literally shrinks him. So it's a shrinking potion. Or is the potion that he takes to turn back into 
Jekyll the actual potion? And that's kind of the question that this story begs, don't you think? Does Dr. Jekyll really want to be Mr. Hyde? Hyde is definitely hedonistic to the point of being sadistic and probably a psychopath. No, definitely a psychopath since he beat somebody to death. But the doctor feels remorse. Apparently he transformed back away from Hyde after he murdered Carew. So that's where we're at. And that is one of the reasons why Stevenson created a returning classic, Jekyll and Hyde. The strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, take your pick. But that's why this is such a returning classic, and that's why even little kids know what Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is. Yes, we all have a Jekyll and Hyde inside of us. I don't know if his allegory was so much about that, except for the fact that the evil Hyde and the saint-like Jekyll were both the same man. But they physically look different. Should we interpret anything from that? Hyde was shorter and carried an air about him of deformity. They never really talk about Dr. Jekyll being tall and handsome. Actually, that's not true. Poole, the butler, says, My master is a tall, handsome man, or cut of a man, or something like that. So, I don't know what you think about my voices. I enjoy doing voices when I read for my kids. They may not be the best, but you know what? Stories that I read over and over and over again, and to be honest, um... For Jekyll and Hyde, I probably read each chapter at least two times. One of them I know I read three times through. And then as I go through in the editorial process, I think I finally get so sick of hearing how I did that interpretation that I just stop and redo it again. That happens pretty consistently. So, all in all, you could probably say that each episode takes a considerable amount of time longer to create than it does to listen to. Perhaps 40, 50, 60 hours of man time go into each one of these episodes. So I hope you enjoy them. They're a labor of love, and hey, they're free. I am getting better at podcasting. This is only my second book. But I'm getting better at the actual post-editing process. It's very time-intensive, and I have a day job, so this is just kind of a labor of love. Um, that is my nice side. What is my dark side? My evil hide side has me slothing about on the couch, being a sloth. <laughs> yeah, I, like, I like that term, slothing. Um, has me not working on my projects, not editing, and sitting around probably feeling sorry for myself. Or it's just not the most pleasant side of me. Now, how could that be a monster? I doubt it could. But this is an interesting story. I would like to know more behind why the man was clubbed to death. You know, all we have is the account of some young girl who was kind of daydreaming out the window, which only has the vantage point of a young girl who saw the scene in the light of a full moon. Which, granted, back in pre-electric days was significant, adequate enough to make a description but the most 
<laughs> violent part, the crux of the story, the fulcrum of the story where everything changes from who is this crazy man Hyde who trampled down a kid and then paid it off with Jekyll's $100 note to somebody who can't control himself and kills for the sheer thrill of it. Maybe that's what the intrinsic dark nature of man is. Maybe we do enjoy the, con the conquest of the kill. The thrill of the chase and the, the thrill of the kill. I personally am not a hunter. I can't speak to that very much. But I'm sure there must be some kind of a rush when it comes to fighting and killing. And we're not even talking hunting. We're talking about killing a fellow human being. Which, let's face it, throughout most of history has been kind of commonplace. And that was what justice was metered out in. In most societies, there was a death penalty. If you did something wrong, you got your head lopped off. A lot of times, if you didn't do anything wrong, you still got your head lopped off. So, it's an interesting story in that context, too, where it falls in history. At the end of the 1800s, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, right before the turn of the 20th century, when so many things were going to happen... Edison was getting ready to throw the switch on electric light. Actually, that, that may have already happened. 1894. Let's, uh, I believe that's when Jekyll and Hyde was written. Was 1894. Um, it was at the end of the 1800s. There's an interesting convention that he uses when he's referring to the date in his book, too. He puts 18 dash dash. So I guess you're left to fill in the year yourself, which is why... When I do my interpretation of the book, I actually say in, in the late 1800s or in 1800 and something. I don't know. I might have left a few of those references in. I ended up redoing them to say um, in the late 1800s. Um, so Stevenson's an interesting character. Did you know that he was also a travel writer? He traveled about quite a bit, and that's how he made his bread and butter as a writer was writing um, travelogues. And he had bronchitis, too, breathing problems, so he probably stuck to coastal waters. It's always been my understanding that salty sea air was considered a treatment, an anathema for bronchial problems, that or the mountains. I know people like being in the mountains as well. So let's keep all these things into consideration as we listen to the last installment of Jekyll and Hyde, which is concurrently the last two chapters which is, let me find my book. We've already had the incident of Dr. Lanyon, The Last Night, where they busted down the door and found Jekyll dead. Now we have Dr. Lanyon's narrative. Perhaps we'll find out why Lanyon is dead. And then we have Dr. Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll's full statement of the case, which actually kind of wraps it all up. It's a little bit anticlimactic the way that we enjoy listening to stuff today. I mean, we, we don't see, like I said, I talked about this earlier, we don't see a lot of things. They're just kind of described. But I'm doing my best to try and bring inflection and meaning and tone to this story for you. But before we get into a dozen minutes, let's get started back with the story. And now, <clears throat> podcast three of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Lanyon's Narrative. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me clear my throat. <clears> throat> 
Dr. Lanyon's narrative, except I'm doing the titles in Scottish, aren't I? Dr. Lanyon's narrative. On the 9th of January, now four days ago, I received by the evening delivery a registered envelope, addressed in the hand of my colleague and old school companion, Henry Jekyll. I was a good deal surprised by this, for we were by no means in the habit of correspondence. I had seen the man, dined with him, indeed the night before, and I could imagine nothing in our intercourse that should justify formality of registration. The contents increased my wonder, for this is how the letter ran. 10th December, 1800. Dear Lanyon, you are one of my oldest friends, and although we may have differed at times on scientific questions, I cannot remember, at least on my side, any break in our affection. There was never a day if you said to me, Jekyll, my life, my honor, my reason depend upon you. I would not have sacrificed my left hand to help you. Lanyon, my life, my honor, my reason are all at your mercy. If you fail me tonight, I am lost. You might suppose after this preface that I am going to ask you for something dishonorable to grant. Judge for yourself. I want you to postpone all other engagements for tonight. I, even if you were summoned to the bedside of an emperor, to take a cab, unless your carriage should be actually at the door, and with this letter in your hand for consultation, to drive straight to my house. Poole, my butler, has his orders. You will find him waiting your arrival with a locksmith. The door of my cabinet is then to be forced, and you are to go in alone to open the glazed press letter E on the left hand, breaking the lock if it be shut, and to draw out, with all its contents as they stand, the fourth drawer from the top, or, which is the same thing, the third from the bottom. In my extreme distress of mind, I have a morbid fear of misdirecting you. But even if I am in error, you may know the right drawer by its contents. Some powders, a vial, and a paper book. This drawer I beg you to carry back with you to Cavendish Square exactly as it stands. This is the first part of the service. Now for the second. You should be back if you set out at once on the receipt of this, long before midnight. But I will leave you that amount of margin, not only in the fear of one of those obstacles that can neither be prevented nor foreseen, but because an hour when your servants are in bed is to be preferred for what will then remain to do. At midnight, then, I have to ask you to be alone in your consulting room, to admit with your own hand into the house a man who will present himself in my name, and to place in his hands the drawer that you will have brought with you from my cabinet. Then you will have played your part and earned my gratitude completely. Five minutes afterwards, if you insist upon explanation, you will have understood that these arrangements are of capital importance, and that by the neglect of one of them, fantastic as they must appear, you might have charged your conscience with my death, or the shipwreck of my reason. Confident as I am, you will not trifle with this appeal. My heart sinks, and my hand trembles at the bare thought of such possibility. Think of me at this hour, in a strange place, laboring under the blackness of distress that no fancy can exaggerate, 
and yet well aware that if you will but punctually serve me, my troubles will roll away like a story that is told. Serve me, my dear Lanyon, and you save your friend H.J. P.S. I had already sealed this up when a fresh terror struck upon my soul. It is possible that the post office may fail me, and this letter not come into your hands until tomorrow morning. In that case, dear Lanyon, do my errand when it shall be most convenient for you in the course of the day, and once more expect my messenger at midnight. It may then already be too late, and if that night passes without event, you will know that you have seen the last of Henry Jekyll. Upon the reading of this letter, I made sure my colleague was insane, but till that was proved beyond the possibility of doubt, I felt bound to do as he requested. The less I understood of this farrago, the less I was in a position to judge of its importance, and an appeal so worded could not be set aside without a grave responsibility. I rose accordingly from table, got into a hansom, and drove straight to Jekyll's house. The butler was waiting my arrival. He had received by the same post as mine a registered letter of instruction, and had sent it once for a locksmith and a carpenter. The tradesmen came while we were yet speaking, and we moved in a body to the old Denman Surgical Theatre, from which, you are doubtless aware, Jekyll's private cabinet is most conveniently entered. The door was very strong, the lock excellent. The carpenter avowed he would have great trouble, and have to do much damage if force were to be used, and the locksmith was near despair. But this last was a handy fellow. Then after two hours' work, the door stood open. The press marked E was unlocked, and I took out the drawer, had it filled up with straw, and tied it in a sheet, and returned with it to Cavendish Square. Here I proceeded to examine its contents. The powders were neatly enough made up, but not with the nicety of the dispensing chemist, so that it was plain that they were of Jekyll's private manufacture. And when I opened one of the wrappers, I found what seemed to me a simple crystalline salt of white color. The vial, to which I next turned my attention, might have been about half full of a blood-red liquor, which was highly pungent to the sense of smell, and seemed to me to contain phosphorus and some volatile ether. At the other ingredients, I could make no guess. The book was an ordinary version book, and contained little but a series of dates. These covered a period of many years, but I observed that the entries ceased nearly a year ago and quite abruptly. Here and there a brief remark was appended to a date, usually no more than a single word, double, occurring perhaps six times in a total of several hundred entries, and once, very early in the list and followed by several marks of exclamation, total failure. All this, though it whetted my curiosity, told me little that was definite. Here were a vial of some tincture, a paper of some salt, and the record of a series of experiments that had led, like too many of Jekyll's investigations, to no end of practical usefulness. How could the presence of these articles in my house affect either the honor or sanity or life of my flighty colleague? If his messenger could go to one place, why could he not go to another? And even granting some impediment, why was this gentleman to be received by me in secret? The more I reflected, 
the more convinced I grew that I was dealing with a case of cerebral disease. And though I dismissed many servants to bed, I loaded an old revolver that I might be found in some posture of self-defense. Twelve o'clock had scarce rung out over London, ere the knocker sounded very gently on the door. I went myself at the summit and found a small man crouching against the pillars of the portico. Are you come from Dr. Jekyll, I asked. He told me yes, by a constrained gesture, and when I had bidden him enter, he did not obey me without a searching backward glance into the darkness of the square. There was a policeman not far off, advancing with his bull's eye open, and at the sight I thought my visitor started and made greater haste. These particulars struck me, I confess, disagreeably, and as I follow him into the bright light of the consulting room, I kept my hand ready on my weapon. Here, at last, I had a chance of clearly seeing him. I had never set eyes on him before, so much as was certain. He was small, as I have said. I was struck beside with the shocking expression on his face, with his remarkable combination of great muscular activity and great apparent debility of constitution. And at last, but not least, with the odd subjective disturbance caused by his neighborhood. This bore some semblance to incipient rigor and was accompanied by a marked sinking of the pulse. At the time, I sat down to some idiosyncratic personal distaste and merely wondered at the acuteness of the symptoms. But I have since had reason to believe the cause to lie much deeper in the nature of man and to turn on some nobler hinge than the principle of hatred. This person, who had thus, from the first moment of his entrance, struck in me what I can only describe as a disgraceful curiosity, was dressed in a fashion that would have made an ordinary person laughable. His clothes, that is to say, although they were of rich and sober fabric, were enormously too large for him, in every measurement. The trousers hanging on his legs, and rolled up to keep them from the ground. The waist of the coat below his haunches, and the collar, sprawling wide upon his shoulders. Strange to relate, this ludicrous accoutrement was far from moving me to laughter, rather as there was something abnormal and misbegotten in the very essence of the creature that now faced me. Something seizing, surprising, and revolting. This fresh disparity seemed but to fit in and to reinforce it, so that to my interest, in the man's nature and character, there was added a curiosity as to its origin his life, his fortune, and status in the world. These observations, though, they have taken so great a space to be set down in, were yet the work of a few seconds. My visitor was, indeed, on fire with somber excitement. Have you got it? And so lively was his impatience that he even laid his hand upon my arm and sought to shake me. I put him back, conscious at his touch of a certain icy pang along my blood. Come, sir, said I. You forget that I have not yet the pleasure of your acquaintance. Be seated, if you please. And I showed him an example, and sat down myself in my customary seat, and with as fair an imitation of my ordinary manner to be patient as the lateness of the hour, my nature of my preoccupations, and the horror I had of my visitor, would suffer me to muster. Be seated, if you please. And I showed him an example, and sat down myself in my customary seat, and with as air an imitation of my ordinary manner to a patient as the lateness of the hour. 
the nature of my preoccupations and the horror I had of my visitor would suffer me to muster. I beg your pardon, Dr. Lanyer, he replied civilly enough. What you say is very well founded, and my impatience has shown its heel to my politeness. I come here at the instance of your colleague, Dr. Henry Jekyll, on a piece of business of some moment, and I understood, he paused and put his hand to his throat, and I could see, in spite of his collared, collected manner, that he was wrestling against the approaches of the hysteria. I understood a draw. But here I took pity on my visitor's suspense, and some perhaps on my own growing curiosity. There it is, sir, said I, pointing to the drawer where it lay on the floor behind a table and still covered with the sheet. He sprung to it, and then paused, and laid his hand upon his heart. I could hear his teeth grate with the convulsive action of his jaws, and his face was so ghastly to see that I grew alarmed both for his life and reason. Compose yourself, said I. He turned a dreadful smile to me, and, as with the decision of despair, plucked away the sheet. At sight of the contents, he uttered one loud sob of such immense relief that I sat petrified. And the next moment, in a voice that was already fairly well under control. Have you a graduating glass? he asked. I rose from my place with something of an effort and gave him what he asked. He thanked me with a smiling nod, measured out a few minims of the red tincture, and added one of the powders. The mixture, which was at first of a reddish hue, began in proportion as the crystals melted to brighten in color to effervescence audibly, and to throw off small fumes of vapor. Suddenly, at the same moment, the ebullition ceased, and the compound changed to a dark purple, which faded again more slowly to a watery green. My visitor, who had watched these metamorphoses with a keen eye, smiled, set down the glass upon the table, and then turned and looked upon me with an air of scrutiny. And now, said he, to settle what remains, will you be wise? Will you be guided? Will you suffer me to take this glass in my hand and to go forth from your house without further parley? Or has the greed of curiosity too much command of you? I think before you answer, for it shall be done as you decide. As you decide, you shall be left as you were before, and neither richer nor wiser, unless the sense of service rendered to a man in mortal distress may be counted as a kind of riches of the soul, or, if you shall so prefer to choose, a new province of knowledge and new avenues to fame and powers shall be laid open to you, here in this room, upon the instant, and your sight shall be blasted by a prodigy to stagger the unbelief of Satan, sir, said I affecting a coolness that I was far from truly possessing. You speak enigmas, and you will perhaps not wonder that I hear you with no very strong impression of belief. But I have gone too far in the way of inexplicable services to pause before I see the end. It is well, replied my visitor. Lanyon, you remember your vows. What follows is under the seal of our profession. And now, you who have so long been bound to the most narrow and material views. You who have denied the virtue of transcendental medicine. 
you who have derided your superiors. Behold. He put the glass to his lips and drank it one gulp. A cry followed. He reeled, staggered, clutched at the table and held on, staring with injected eyes, gasping with open mouth. And as I looked, there came, I thought, a change. He seemed to swell. His face became suddenly black, and the features seemed to melt and alter. And the next moment I had sprung to my feet and leapt back against the wall, my arm raised to shield me from that prodigy, my mind submerged in terror. Oh God, I screamed, oh God, again and again. For there before my eyes, pale and shaken and half fainting and groping before him with his hands, like a man restored from death, there stood Henry Jekyll. What he told me in the next hour, I cannot bring my mind to set on paper. I saw what I saw. I heard what I heard. And my soul sickened at it. And yet now, when that sight has faded from my eyes, I ask myself if I believe it. And I cannot answer. My life is shaken to its roots. Sleep has left me. The deadliest terror sits by me at all hours of the day and night. I feel that my days are numbered, and I must die. And yet I shall die incredulous. As for the moral turpitude that man unveiled to me, even with tears of penitence, I cannot, even in memory, dwell on it without a start of horror. I will but say one thing, Utterson, and that, if you can bring your mind to credit it, will be more than enough. The creature who crept into my house that night was, on Jekyll's own confession, known by the name of Hyde, and hunted for in every corner of the land as the murderer of Carew, Hasty Lanyon. Henry Jekyll's Full Statement of the Case I was born in the year 1870 to a large fortune endowed besides with excellent parts, inclined by nature to industry, fond of the respect of the wise and good among my fellow men, and thus, as might have been supposed, with every guarantee of an honorable and distinguished future. And indeed, the worst of my faults was a certain impatient gaiety of disposition, such as has made the happiness of many, but such as I found it hard to reconcile with my imperious desire to carry my head high, and wear a more than commonly grave countenance before the public. Hence it came about that I concealed my pleasures, and that when I reached years of reflection, and began to look round me and take stock of my progress and position in the world, I stood ready committed to a profound duplicity of life. Many a man would have even blazoned such irregularities as I was guilty of. But from the high views that I had set before me, I regarded and hid them with an almost morbid sense of shame. It was thus rather the exacting nature of my aspirations than any particular degradation in my faults that made me what I was, and with an even deeper trench than in the majority of men, severed in me those provinces of good and ill which divide and compound man's dual nature. In this case, I was driven to reflect deeply and inveterately on that hard law of life which lies at the root of religion and is one of the most 
plentiful springs of distress. Though so profound a double dealer, I was in no sense a hypocrite. Both sides of me were in dead earnest. I was no more myself when I laid aside restraint and plunged in shame than when I labored, in the eye of day, at the furtherance of knowledge, or the relief of sorrow and suffering. And it chanced that the direction of my scientific studies, which led wholly toward the mystic and the transcendental, reacted and shed a strong light on this consciousness of the perennial war among my members. With every day, and from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the intellectual, I thus drew steadily nearer to that truth, by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck, that man is not truly one, but truly two. I say two, because the state of my own knowledge does not pass beyond that point. Others will follow, others will outstrip me on the same lines, and I hazard the guess that man will be ultimately known for a mere polity of multifarious, incongruous, and independent denizens. I, for my part, from the nature of my life, advanced infallibly in one direction, and in one direction only, it was on the moral side. And in my own person, that I learned to recognize the thorough and primitive duality of man, I saw that of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness, even if I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both. And from an early date, even before the course of my scientific discoveries had begun to suggest the most naked possibility of such a miracle, I had learned to dwell with pleasure as a beloved daydream on the thought of the separation of these elements. If each, I told myself, could but be housed in separate identities, life would be relieved of all that was unbearable. The unjust might go his way, delivered from the aspirations and remorse of his more upright twin, and the just could walk steadfastly and securely on his upward path, doing the good things in which he found his pleasure, and no longer exposed to disgrace and penitence by the hands of his extraneous evil. It was the curse of mankind that these incongruous faggots were thus bound together, that in the agonized womb of consciousness, these polar twins should be continuously struggling. How then were they dissociated? I was so far in my reflections when, as I have said, a side light began to shine upon the subject from the laboratory table. I began to perceive more deeply than it has ever yet been stated the trembling immateriality, the mist-like transience of this seemingly so solid body in which we walk attired. Certain agents I found have the power to shake and to pluck back that fleshy vestment, even as a wind might toss the curtains of a pavilion. For two good reasons, I will not enter deeply into the scientific branch of my confession. First, because I have been made to learn that the doom and burden of our life is bound forever on man's shoulders. And when the attempt is made to cast it off, it but returns upon us with more unfamiliar and more awful pressure. Second, because as my narrative will make, alas, too evident, my discoveries were incomplete. Enough, then, 
that I not only recognize my natural body for the mere aura and effulgence of certain of the powers that made up my spirit, but managed to compound a drug by which these powers should be dethroned from their supremacy. And a second form and countenance substituted nonetheless natural to me because they were the expression and bore the stamp of lower elements in my soul. I hesitated long before I put this theory to the test of practice. I knew well that I risked death for any drug that so potently controlled and shook the very fortress of identity might, by the least scruple of an overdose or the least inopportunity in the moment of exhibition, utterly blot out that immaterial tabernacle which I looked to it to change. But the temptation of a discovery so singular and profound at the last overcame my suggestions of alarm. I had long since prepared my tincture. I purchased at once, from a firm whose wholesale chemists, a large quantity of a particular salt, which I knew from my experiments to be the last ingredient required. And late one accursed night, I compounded the elements, watched them boil and smoke together in the glass, and when the ebullition had subsided, with a strong glow of courage, drank off. The potion. The most racking pain succeeded. A grinding in the bones, deadly nausea, and a horror of the spirit that cannot be exceeded at the hour of birth or death. Then these agonies began swiftly to subside, and I came to myself as if out of a great sickness. There was something strange in my sensations, something indescribably new, and from its very novelty, incredibly sweet. I felt younger lighter, happier in body. Within, I was conscious of a heady recklessness, a current of disordered sensual images running like a mill race in my fancy, a solution of the bonds of obligation, an unknown but not an innocent freedom of the soul. I knew myself, at the first breath of this new life, to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, <laughs> sold a slave to my original evil, and the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. I stretched out my hands, exulting in the freshness of these sensations, and in the act I was suddenly aware that I had lost in stature. There was no mirror at that date in my room. That which stands beside me as I write was brought there later on, and for the very purpose of these transformations. The night, however, was far gone into the morning. The morning, black as it was, was nearly ripe for the conception of the day. The inmates of my house were locked in the most rigorous hours of slumber, and I determined, flushed as I was with hope and triumph, to venture in my new shape as far as to my bedroom. I crossed the yard, wherein the constellations looked upon me. I could have thought with wonder, the first creature of that sort, that their unsleeping vigilance had yet disclosed to them. I stole through the corridors, a stranger in my own house, and coming to my room, I saw for the first time the appearance of Edward Hyde. I must here speak by theory alone, saying that which I know, but that which I suppose to be most probable, the evil side of my nature, to which I had now transferred the stamping efficacy, was less robust and less developed than the good which I had just deposed. 
Again, in the course of my life, which had been, after all, nine-tenths of a life of effort, virtue, and control, it had been much less exercised and much less exhausted. And hence, as I think, it came about that Edward Hyde was so much smaller, slighter, and younger than Henry Jekyll. Even as good shone upon the countenance of the one, evil was written broadly and plainly on the face of the other. Evil, besides, which I must still believe to be the lethal side of man, had left on that body an imprint of deformity and decay. And yet when I looked upon that ugly idol in the glass, I was conscious of no repugnance, rather of a leap of welcome. This too was myself. It seemed natural, human. In my eyes, it bore a livelier image of the spirit. It seemed more express and single than the imperfect and divine countenance I had been hitherto accustomed to call mine. And in so far, I was doubtless right. I have observed that when I wore the semblance of Edward Hyde, None could come near me at first without a visible misgiving of the flesh. This, as I take it, was because all human beings, as we meet them, are co-mingled out of good and evil, and Edward High, alone in the ranks of mankind, was pure evil. I lingered but a moment at the mirror. The second and conclusive experiment had yet to be attempted. It yet remained to be seen if I had lost my identity beyond redemption and must flee before daylight from a house that was no longer mine. And hurrying back to my cabinet, I once more prepared and drank the cup, once more suffered the pangs of dissolution, and came to myself once more with the character, the stature, and the face of Henry Jekyll. That night I had come to the fatal crossroad. Had I approached my discovery in a more noble spirit, had I risked the experiment while under the empire of generous or pious aspirations, all must have been otherwise. And from these agonies of death and birth, I had come forth an angel instead of a fiend. The drug had no discriminating action. It was neither diabolical nor divine. It but shook the doors of the prison house of my disposition. And like the captives, of the Philippi, that which stood within ran forth. At that time my virtue slumbered. My evil, kept awake by ambition, was alert and swift to seize the occasion. And the thing that was projected was Edward High. Hence, although I now had two characters, as well as two appearances, one wholly evil, and the other was still the old Henry Jekyll, that incongruous compound of those reformation and improvement I had already learned to despair. The movement was thus wholly toward the worse. Even at that time, I had not yet conquered my aversion to the dryness of a life of study. I would still be merrily disposed at times, and as my pleasures were, to say the least, undignified, and I was not only well-known and highly considered, but growing toward the elderly man, this incoherency of my life was daily growing more unwelcome. It was on this side, that my new power tempted me until I fell into slavery. I had but to drink the cup, and doff at once the body of the noted professor, and to assume, like a thick coat, that of Edward High. I smiled at the notion. It seemed to me at the time to be humorous, and I made my preparations with the most studious care. I took and furnished that house in Soho, to which Hyde was tracked by the police, 
and engaged as a housekeeper, a creature whom I well knew to be silent and unscrupulous. On the other side, I announced to my servants that Mr. Hyde, whom I described, was to have full liberty and power about my house in the square, and to parry mishaps. I even called and made myself a familiar object in my second character. I next drew up that will to which you so much objected, so that if anything befell me in the person of Dr. Jekyll, I could enter on that of Edward Hyde without pecuniary loss, and thus fortifying, as I supposed, on every side. I began to profit by the strange immunities of my position. Men have before hired bravos to transact their crimes, while their own person and reputation sat under shelter. I was the first that ever did this for his pleasures. I was the first that could thus plod in the public eye with a load of genial respectability, and in a moment, like a schoolboy, strip off these lendings and spring headlong into the sea of liberty. But from me, in my impenetrable mantle, the safety was complete. Think of it. I did not even exist. Let me but escape into my laboratory door. Give me but a second or two to mix and swallow the drought that I had always standing ready. And whatever he had done, Edward Hyde would pass away like the stain of breath upon a mirror. And there in his stead, quietly at home, trimming the midnight lamp in his study, a man who could afford to laugh at suspicion, would be Henry Jekyll. The pleasures which I made haste to seek in my disguise were, as I have said, undignified. I would scarce use a harder term, but in the hands of Edward Hyde, they soon began to turn toward the monstrous, when I would come back from these excursions, I was often plunged into a kind of wonder at my vicarious depravity, this familiar that I called out of my own soul, and sent forth alone to do his good pleasure, was a being inherently malign and villainous. His every act and thought centered on self. Drinking pleasure with bestial avidity from any degree of torture to another, Relentless like a man of stone, Henry Jekyll stood at times aghast before the acts of Edward Hyde. But the situation was apart from ordinary laws, and insidiously relaxed the grasp of consciousness. It was Hyde, after all, and Hyde alone that was guilty. Jekyll was no worse. He woke again to his good qualities, seemingly unimpaired. He would even make haste, where it was possible, to undo the evil done by Hyde. And thus his conscience slumbered into the details of the infamy at which I thus connived, for even now I can scarce grant that I committed it. I have no design of entering. I mean but to point out the warnings and the successive steps with which my chastisement approached. I met with one accident which, as it brought on no consequence, I shall no more than mention. An act of cruelty to a child aroused against me the anger of a passerby, whom I recognized the other day in the person of your kinsman. The doctor and the child's family joined him. There were moments when I feared for my life, and at last, in order to pacify their too just resentment, Edward Hyde had to bring them to the door and pay them in a check drawn in the name of Henry Jekyll. But this danger was easily eliminated from the future by opening an account at another bank, in the name of Edward Hyde himself. And when, by sloping my own hand backward, 
I had supplied my double with a signature. I thought I sat beyond the reach of fate. Some two months before the murder of Sir Danvers, I had been out for one of my adventures, had returned at a late hour, and woke the next day in bed with somewhat odd sensations. It was in vain I looked about me. In vain I saw the decent furniture and the tall proportions of my room in the square. In vain that I recognized the pattern of the bed curtains and the design of the mahogany frame. Something still kept insisting that I was not where I was, that I had not wakened where I seemed to be. But in the little room in Soho, where I was accustomed to sleep in the body of Edward Hyde, something still kept insisting that I was not where I was, that I had not wakened where I seemed to be. But in the little room in Soho, where I was accustomed to sleep in the body of Edward Hyde, I smiled to myself, and in my psychological way began lazily to inquire into the elements of this illusion. Occasionally, even as I did so, dropping back into a comfortable morning doze. I was still so engaged when, in one of my more wakeful moments, my eyes fell upon my hand, now the hand of Henry Jekyll, as you have often remarked, was professional in shape and size. It was large, firm, white, and comely. But the hand which I now saw, clearly enough, in the yellow light of a mid-London morning, lying half shut on the bedclothes, was lean, corded, knuckly, of a dusky pallor, and thickly shaded with a swart growth of hair. It was the hand of Edward Hyde. I must have stared upon it for near half a minute, sunk as I was in the mere stupidity of wonder, before terror woke up in my breast, as sudden and startling as the crash of cymbals. And bounding from my bed, I rushed to the mirror, at the sight that met my eyes, my blood was changed into something exquisitely thin and icy. Yes, I had gone to bed, Henry Jekyll. I had awakened Edward Hyde. How was this to be explained? I asked myself, and then, with another bound of terror, how was it to be remedied? It was well on in the morning. The servants were up. All my drugs were in the cabinet, a long journey down two pairs of stairs through a back passage, across the open court, and through an anatomical theater from where I was then standing horror-struck. It might indeed be possible to cover my face, but of what use was that when I was unable to conceal the alteration in my stature? And then, with an overpowering sweetness of relief, it came back upon my mind that the servants were already used to the coming and going of my second self. I had soon dressed as well as I was able, in clothes of my own size, had soon passed through the house, where Bradshaw stared and drew back at seeing Mr. Hyde at such an hour and in such a strange array. And ten minutes late, Dr. Jekyll had returned to his own shape and was sitting down with a darkened brow to make a feint of breakfasting. Small indeed was my appetite. This inexplicable incident, this reversal of my previous experience seemed like the Babylonian finger on the wall to be spelling out the letters of my judgment. And I began to reflect more seriously than ever before on the issues and possibilities of my double existence. 
That part of me, which I had the power of projecting, had lately been much exercised and nourished. It had seemed to me of late as though the body of Edward Hyde had grown in stature, as though, when I wore that form, I were conscious of a more generous tide of blood, and I began to spy a danger that, if this were much prolonged, the balance of my nature might be permanently overthrown, the power of voluntary change be forfeited, and the character of Edward Hyde become irrevocably mine. The power of the drug had not been always equally displayed. Once, very early in my career, it had totally failed me. Since then, I had been obliged on more than one occasion to double, and once, with infinite risk of death, to treble the amount. And these rare uncertainties had cast hitherto the sole shadow on my contentment. Now, however, and in the light of that morning's accident, I was led to remark that whereas in the beginning the difficulty had been to throw off the body of Jekyll, it had of late, gradually but decidedly, transferred itself to the other side. All things, therefore, seemed to point to this, that I was slowly losing hold of my original and better self, and becoming slowly incorporated with my second and worse. Between these two, I now felt I had to choose. My two natures had memory in common, but all other faculties were most unequally shared between them. Jekyll, who was the composite, now with the most sensitive apprehensions, now with a greedy gusto, projected and shared in the pleasures and adventures of Hyde. But Hyde was indifferent to Jekyll, or but remembered him as a mountain bandit remembers the cavern in which he conceals himself from pursuit. Jekyll had more than a father's interest. Hyde had more than a son's indifference. To cast in my lot with Jekyll was to die to those appetites, which I had long secretly indulged and had of late begun to pamper. To cast it in with Hyde was to die to a thousand interests, aspirations, and to become, at a blow and forever, despised and friendless. The bargain might appear unequal, but there was still another consideration in the scales. For while Jekyll would suffer smartingly in the fires of abstinence, Hyde would not be even conscious of all that he had lost. Strange as my circumstances were, the term of this debate are as old and commonplace as man. Much the same inducements and alarms cast the die for any tempted and trembling sinner, and it fell out with me, as it falls with so vast a majority of my fellows, that I choose the better part, and was found wanting in the strength to keep it. Yes, I preferred the elderly and discontented doctor, surrounded by friends and cherishing honest hopes, and bade a resolute farewell to the liberty and comparative youth, the light step, leaping impulses and secret pleasures that I had enjoyed in the disguise of Hyde. I made this choice perhaps with some unconscious reservation, for I neither gave up the house in Soho, nor destroyed the clothes of Edward Hyde, which still lay ready in my cabinet. For two months, however, I was true to my determination. For two months, I led a life of such severity as I had never before attained to, and enjoyed the compensations of an approving conscience. But time began at last to obliterate the freshness of my alarm. The praises of conscience began to grow into a thing of course. I began to be tortured with throes and longings, 
as of Hyde struggling after freedom. And at last, in an hour of moral weakness, I once again compounded and swallowed the transforming drought. I do not suppose that when a drunkard reasons with himself upon his vice, he is once out of 500 times affected by the dangers that he runs through his brutish physical insensibility. Neither had I, long as I had considered my position, made enough allowance for the complete moral insensibility and insensate readiness to evil, which were the leading characters of Edward. Yet it was by these that I was punished. My devil had been long caged. He came out roaring. I was conscious, even when I took the drought, of a more unbridled, a more furious propensity to ill. It must have been this, I suppose, that stirred in my soul the tempest of impatience with which I listened to the civilities of my unhappy victim. I declare at least before God, no man morally sane could have been guilty of that crime upon so pitiful a provocation and that I struck in no more reasonable spirit that in which a sick child may break a plaything. But I had voluntarily stripped myself of all these balancing instincts, by which even the worst of us continues to walk with some degree of steadiness among temptations. And in my case, to be tempted, however slightly, was to fall. Instantly the spirit of hell awoke in me and raged. With a transport of glee, I mauled the unresisting body, tasting delight from every blow, and it was not till weariness had begun to succeed that I was suddenly, in the top fit of my delirium, struck through the heart by a cold thrill of terror. A mist dispersed. I saw my life to be forfeit, and fled from the scene of these excesses, at once glorying and trembling, my lust of evil gratified and stimulated. My love of life screwed to the topmost peg. I ran to the house in Soho to make assurance doubly sure, destroyed my papers. Thence, I set out through the lamplit streets in the same divided ecstasy of mind, gloating on my crime, others in the future, and yet still hastening and still hearkening in my wake for the steps of the Avenger. Hyde had a song upon his lips, and he compounded the drought, and as he drank it, pledged the dead man. The pangs of transformation had not done tearing him before Henry Jekyll, with streaming tears of gratitude and remorse, had fallen upon his knees and lifted his clasped hands to God. The veil of self-indulgence was rent from head to foot. I saw my life as a whole. I followed it up from the days of childhood, when I had walked with my father's hand and through the self-denying toils of my professional life to arrive again and again with the same sense of unreality at the damned horrors of the evening. I could have screamed aloud. I sought with tears and prayers to smother down the crowd of hideous images and sounds with which my memory swarmed against me. And still, between the petitions, the ugly face of my iniquity stared into my soul. As the acuteness of this remorse began to die away, it was succeeded by a sense of joy. The problem of my conduct was solved. Hyde was thenceforth impossible, whether I would or not. I was now confined to the better part of my existence. And oh, how I rejoice to think it. With what willing humility I embrace anew the restrictions of natural life. With what 
sincere renunciation, I locked the door by which I had so often gone and come, and ground the key under my heel. The next day came the news that the murder had been overlooked, that the guilt of Hyde was patent to the world, and that the victim was a man high in public estimation. It was not only a crime, it had been a tragic folly. I think I was glad to know it. I think I was glad to have my better impulses thus buttressed and guarded by the terrors of the scaffold. Jekyll was now my city of refuge, but let Hyde peep out an instant, and the hands of all men would be raised to take and slay him. I resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past, and I can say with honesty that my resolve was fruitful of some good. You know yourself how earnestly, in the last months of the last year, I labored to relieve suffering. You know that much was done for others, and that the days passed quietly almost happily for myself. Nor can I truly say that I wearied of this beneficent and innocent life. I think instead that I daily enjoyed it more completely, but I was still cursed with my duality of purpose. And as the first edge of my penitence wore off the lower side of me, so long indulged, so recently chained down, began to growl for license. Not that I dreamed of resuscitating Hyde. The bare idea of that would startle me to frenzy. No, it was in my own person that I was once more tempted to trifle with my conscience. And it was as an ordinary secret sinner that I at last fell before the assaults of temptation. There comes an end to all things. The most capacious measure is filled at last, and this brief condescension to my evil finally destroyed the balance of my soul. And yet I was not alarmed. The fall seemed natural, like a return to the old days before I had made my discovery. It was a fine, clear January day, wet underfoot, where the frost had melted but cloudless overhead and the Regent's Park was full of winter chirrupings and the sweet with spring odors. I sat in the sun on a bench, the animal within me licking the chaps of memory, the spiritual side a little drowsed, promising subsequent penitence, but not yet moved to begin. After all, I reflected, I was like my neighbors. And then I smiled, comparing myself with other men comparing my act of goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most deadly shuddering. These passed away and left me faint. And then, as in its turn, the faintness subsided. I began to be aware of a change in the temper of my thoughts, a greater boldness, a contempt of danger a solution of the bonds of obligation. I looked down. My clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs. The hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy. I was once more Edward Hyde. A moment before I had been safe of all men's respect, wealthy, beloved, the cloth laying for me in the dining room at home, and now I was the common quarry of mankind, hunted, houseless, a known murderer. 
thrall to the gallows. My reason wavered, but it did not fail me utterly. I have more than once observed that, in my second character, my faculties seemed sharpened to a point, and my spirits more tensely elastic. Thus it came about that, where Jekyll perhaps might have succumbed, Hyde rose to the importance of the moment. My drugs were in one of the presses of my cabinet. How was I to reach them? That was the problem that, crushing my temples in my hands, I set myself to solve. The laboratory door had closed. If I sought to enter by the house, my own servants would consign me to the gallows. I saw I must employ another hand, and thought of Lanyon. How was he to be reached? How persuaded? Supposing that I escaped capture in the streets, how was I to make my way into his presence? And how should I, an unknown and displeasing visitor, prevail on the famous physician to rifle the study of his colleague, Dr. Jekyll? Then I remembered that of my original character, one part remained to me. I could write my own hand, and once I had conceived that kindling spark, the way that I must follow became lighted up from end to end. Thereupon I arranged my clothes as best I could, and summoning a passing hansom, drove to an hotel in Portland Street, the name of which I chanced to remember. At my appearance, which was indeed comical enough, however tragic a fate these garments covered, the driver could not conceal his mirth. I gnashed my teeth upon him with a gust of devilish fury, and the smile withered from his face, happily for him, yet more happily for myself, for in an instant I had certainly dragged him from his perch. At the inn, as I entered, I look about me with so black a countenance as made the attendants tremble. Not a look did they exchange in my presence, but obsequiously took my order led me to a private room, and brought me wherewithal to write. Hyde, in danger of his life, was a creature new to me, shaken with inordinate anger, strung to the perch of murder, lusting to inflict pain. Yet the creature was astute, mastered his fury with a great effort of the will, composed his two important letters, one to Lanyon and one to Poole, and that he might receive actual evidence of their being posted, sent them out with directions that they should be registered. Thenceforward, he sat all day over the fire in the private room, gnawing his nails. There he dined, sitting alone with his fears, the waiter visibly quailing before his eye. And thence, when the night was fully come, he set forth in the corner of a closed cab, and was driven to and fro about the streets of the city. He, I say, I cannot say I. That child of hell had nothing human. Nothing lived in him but fear and hatred. And when at last, thinking the driver had begun to grow suspicious, he discharged the cab and ventured on foot, attired in his misfitting clothes, an object marked out for observation, into the midst of the nocturnal passengers. These two base passions raged within him like a tempest. He walked fast, hunted by his fears, chattering to himself, skulking through the less frequented thoroughfares, counting the minutes that still divided him from midnight. 
Once a woman spoke to him, offering, I think, a box of lights. He smote her in the face, and she fled. And when I came to myself at Lanyon's, the horror of my old friend perhaps affected me somewhat. It was at least but a drop into the sea to the abhorrence with which I looked back upon these hours. A change had come over me. It was no longer the fear of the gallows. It was the horror of being Hyde that racked me. I received Lanyon's condemnation partly in a dream. It was partly in a dream that I came home to my own house and got into bed. I slept after the prostration of the day with a stringent and profound slumber which is not even the nightmares that wrung me could avail to break. I woke in the morning shaken, weakened but refreshed. I still hated and feared the thought of the brute that slept within me, and I had not, of course, forgotten the appalling dangers of the day before. But I was once more at home, in my own house, and close to my drugs, and gratitude for my escape shone so strong in my soul that it almost rivaled the brightness of hope. I was stepping leisurely across the court after breakfast, drinking the chill of the air with pleasure, when I was seized again with those indescribable sensations that heralded the change, and I had but the time to gain the shelter of my cabinet before I was once again raging and freezing with the passions of Hyde. It took on this occasion a double dose to recall me to myself, and alas, six hours later as I sat looking sadly in the fire, the pangs returned, and the drug had to be re-administered. In short, from that day forth, it seemed only by a great effort as of gymnastics, and only under the immediate stimulation of the drug that I was able to wear the countenance of Jekyll. At all hours of the day and night, I would be taken with the premonitory shudder. Above all, if I slept or even dozed for a moment in my chair, it was always as Hyde that I awakened. Under the strain of this continually impending doom, and by the sleeplessness to which I now condemned myself, I, even beyond what I had thought possible to man, I became, in my own person, a creature eaten up and emptied by fever, languidly weak, both in body and mind and solely occupied by one thought, the horror of my other self. But when I slept, or when the virtue of the medicine wore off, I would leap almost without transition, for the pangs of transformation grew daily less marked, into the possession of a fancy brimming with images of terror, a soul boiling with causeless hatreds, and a body that seemed not strong enough to contain the raging energies of life. The powers of Hyde seem to have grown with the sickliness of Jekyll, and certainly the hate that now divided them was equal on each side. With Jekyll it was a thing of vital instinct. He had now seen the full deformity of that creature that shared with him some of the phenomena of consciousness, and was co-heir with him to death, and beyond these links of community, which in themselves made the most poignant parts of this distress be thought of Hyde, for all his energy of life as of something not only hellish, but inorganic. This was the shocking thing, that the slime of the pit seemed to utter cries and voices, that the amorphous dust gesticulated and sinned, and that what was dead 
and had no shape, should usurp the offices of life. And this again, that that insurgent horror was knit to him closer than a wife, closer than an eye lay caged in his flesh, where he heard it mutter and felt it struggle to be born, and at every hour of weakness and in the confidence of slumber prevailed against him and deposed him out of life. The hatred of Hyde for Jekyll was of a different order. His terror of the gallows drove him continually to commit temporary suicide and return to a subordinate station of a part instead of a person. But he loathed the necessity. He loathed the despondency into which Jekyll was now fallen. And he resented the dislike with which he was himself regarded. Hence the ape-like tricks that he would play me, scrawling in my own hand blasphemies on the pages of my books, burning the letters and destroying the portrait of my father. And indeed, had it not been for his fear of death, he would long ago have ruined himself in order to involve me in the ruin. But his love of life is wonderful. I go further. I, who sicken and freeze at the mere thought of him, when I recall the objection and passion of this attachment, and when I know how he fears my power to cut him off by suicide, I find it in my heart to pity him. It is useless, and the time awfully fails me, to prolong this description. No one has ever suffered such torments. Let that suffice. And yet even to these habit brought, no, not alleviation, but a certain callousness of soul a certain acquiescence of despair, and my punishment might have gone on for years. But for the last calamity which has now fallen, and which has finally severed me from my own face and nature, my provision of the salt, which had never been renewed since the date of the first experiment, began to run low. I sent out for a fresh supply and mixed the drought. The ebullition followed, and the first change of color, not the second. I drank it, and it was without efficiency. You will learn from Poole how I have had London ransacked. It was in vain, and I am now persuaded that my first supply was impure, and that it was that unknown impurity which lent efficacy to the drought. About a week has passed, and I am now finishing the statement under the influence of the last of the old powders. This, then, is the last time short of a miracle that Henry Jekyll can think his own thoughts or see his own face, now how sadly altered, in the glass. Nor must I delay too long to bring my writings to an end, for if my narrative has hitherto escaped destruction, it has been by combination of great prudence and great good luck. Should the throes of change take me in the act of writing it, Hyde will tear it to pieces. But if some time shall have elapsed after I have laid it by, his wonderful selfishness and circumscription to the moment will probably save it once again from the action of his ape-like spite. And indeed, the doom that is closing on us both has already changed and crushed him half an hour from now, when I shall again and forever re-endue that hated personality. I know how I shall sit, shuddering and weeping in my chair, or continue with the most strained and fear-struck ecstasy of listening, 
to pace up and down this room, my last earthly refuge, and give ear to every sound of menace. Will Hyde die upon the scaffold, or will he find courage to release himself at the last moment? God knows. I am careless. This is my true hour of death, and what is to follow concerns another than myself. Here, then, as I lay down the pen and proceed to seal up my confession, I bring the life of that unhappy Henry Jekyll to an end. And that concludes The Startling Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. I'm curious to know what you thought of it. Of course, I'm always interested to entertain any kind of questions anybody has. Not that I'm an expert in English literature, but I do enjoy performing the parts and then trying to bring these things to life a little bit. Please join us next time on Public Domain Playhouse when we bring you Jack London's The Call of the Wild. In the meantime, if you would like to join us in our follow-up of Jekyll and Hyde, we'll be discussing the storyline, the history behind Robert Louis Stevenson's gothic novella classic, as well as ramifications towards today's society. Thank you again for joining us for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Public Domain Playhouse is brought to you by contributions from generous listeners just like you. For more information, feel free to visit my page on anchor.fm. And in the meantime... We'll see you in the pages of history. Copyright 2019 Roundabout Productions.